The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, the Reverend Bill McDonald, is a near-death experiencer, author, an award-winning poet, international motivational speaker, artist, film advisor, a Vietnam War veteran and veteran advocate, and the founder of Spiritual Warrior Ministries. He's been involved with a dozen films and documentaries, such as In the Shadow of the Blade, shown on the History Channel, and The Art of Healing, shown on PBS. Stories about his life featured in over a dozen books and in hundreds of magazine and newspaper articles, and Reverend Bill received the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Purple Heart as a Vietnam veteran. His multiple near-death experiences include meetings with masters who explained the purpose of life and his personal mission. Gifted with uh, precognition, his unique perspective as a Reverend Bridges' religion and spirituality, and his most recent book is Alchemy of the Warrior's Heart. Bill, welcome to NDE Radio. Well, good morning from the left coast of America, where we're all quarantined. <laughs> yes, from the from the right coast to the left coast. Uh, I'm over in Maine, and you're in California. Uh, Bill, we uh, survived another Ides of March, and today's your 74th birthday. So, uh, happy birthday! Well, well, thank you. It's uh, it's always good to reach another milestone, and uh, honestly, uh, I didn't think I'd make this one. So. I had a lot of times in my life. I had three near-death experiences, and then, of course, in Vietnam, I was shot up, shot down, wounded, blown up, uh, crashed eight times. So everything that's happened could happen. Yeah. And uh, but I'm here. So while I'm still breathing, I have a, a purpose and a mission and a dharma to carry out. So I take Absol- each- absolutely. And I think you must have known it from an early age. Um, uh, you write that you came from a line of psychic women. Your your mother and your grandmother were gifted, and and I guess your mother worked as a as a fortune teller for a while. And yeah, and she was, um, she was a uh, uh, she used to read cards for all these different people, and she'd read tea leaves, she read cards, she read whatever it is, and then she confessed to me one day. She says, "I just read them, but if, if you tell people that you're bringing these things up." They're not as receptive, but if you're reading the cards, they all look at the cards, and the card says that. But she was (laughs) super, super accurate and uh, very psychic, and her her mother, my grandmother, was very psychic. And going back to Italy, uh, I guess I'm about the seventh generation, but there was like generations of this same kind of thing. In fact, my grandmother's grandfather or something was – uh, they were thinking about anointing him, uh, put him in for sainthood or something. He was really some psychic guy in, in Italy. Wow. And when he died, they went to the church. I don't know what the process is, but, uh, but at least they considered it. So anyway, yeah. Do you, do you, do you think these gifts are, are genetic in part or are they, uh, part of your family's karma? Well, I think karma is the same thing as the DNA. Because you get the physical DNA that you need based on your karma, and you get the spiritual DNA based on uh, your your previous work, and if you believe in reincarnation, which I do. Yes. So I think it's all connected. And uh, very importantly, I, I think that uh, 
one can also alter and change that spiritual DNA through meditation. And mm. that's, how, that's how you can burn more severe karma. Otherwise, it'd be very difficult to live long enough to burn all this karma on its own just with life. Yes. Uh, Bill, tell us about some of your psychic um, insights as a child and, and also about your NDE on the operating table when you were eight. Okay. Let's start with uh, – <clears throat> I was born at a very young age. How's that for the beginning? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm so excited I couldn't talk for a year. But uh, – <laughs> No, I actually, I start off very humble beginnings. Uh, my mother already had, you know, two kids before me and she went to the hospital. The due date was, uh, St. Patrick's Day, but she come in the day before today, March 16th, 1946. And she goes, I'm, I'm ready to deliver. Let's go. And they go, no, 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 no. We, we know you're not ready. She goes, no, I'm ready. So they, they said, no, first we've got to give you an enema, clean you out. And of course, during the enema process into a hard metal bedpan, that's oh. what popped my little head. That's how I started life with a mouthful of, of Yikes. And it's, been, it's been a humbling experience and, and, and I've kind of gone from that point forward. But when I was little, my mother belonged to self-realization fellowship and I think she joined 1946 when I was born and she used to tell me the stories and she'd read to me. And at, at the age of like two, three years old, I was meditating. Uh, doing a Hong Saw technique, the Ohm technique, uh, which were three years old. I guess that's a big deal. Not too many three-year-olds are doing that. But I was always kind of psychic. And me and my little sister, who's little, she's 72 years old. <laughs> and she and I used to play this card game where you had a deck of cards. And, and you'd concentrate on a card where she can't see it. And then she'd have to guess, not just that it's a, a, a hearts or not just that it's an eight of hearts. It had to be exactly an eight of hearts. If it was an eight of, of diamonds, it wouldn't count. And we'd go through a deck and I'd get uh, 28 to 40 something sometimes and she'd get hmm. 20 something. And I thought that was, you know, people could do that. And then I realized that's more than random guessing. If you could go eight of clubs, you know, five of diamonds. So, yes. and then we would uh, also lay on the, uh, the grassy knoll back of our house in Oregon when I, we lived in Oregon a couple of years and there was this little housing project. We'd lay out there and we'd look up at the cloudy sky and, uh, cloud formations and we would break them up and try to break them apart and move them. And it worked, you know, but we were just little kids, you know, four, four or five years old. And I did, you know, you can't move a cloud. You can't dissolve a cloud. Come on. So. <laughs> did you have any, um, uh, Prophetic visions when you were a child? People came visit me and I, I'll just let it go at that. But it was the big, the big, uh, the big deal in my life happened about eight years old, eight and a half. And I was really, really, really sick. Uh, at the time, people just thought, you know, my mother just kept sending me to school. I had, I had the mumps. And then when you get the mumps and you get run down, you get other things, you know, and I got pneumonia. So I had the mumps. I had pneumonia. And then my kidneys went and I got, uh, 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 Bright's disease, which it used to be called. That's a pretty general term now, but Bright's disease of the kidneys, which is usually very dangerous. Mm. And, uh, and then four or five other diseases all happened. Finally, the school saw how bad I was. I looked like a POW going to school. My body was, you know, really 
uh, shrunken, losing weight, and I was dizzy. And they sent me home, and pretty soon the doctor came to visit me, and, and they go, oh, my God, take this guy to the doctor, because I was pretty bad. I get to the county hospital in San Jose, and uh, I'm in there maybe 10 minutes, and they're basically telling my parents I can hear them. Uh, it's, you may have brought this kid in too late. I mean, he's pretty gone. I mean, his blood pressure is terrible. His, you know, the heart rate, everything. You know, he's hardly breathing. His lungs are filled up. I mean, there's sundry of things. And so they strapped me into a gurney and rolled me out of the building to an isolation ward. And uh, my parents left. And there I was at eight years old, all alone, with nobody telling me what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, how long I was going to be there. Nobody said what was wrong. Nobody's talking to me. You know, mm. back then you were a kid in the hospital. You were, you know, it wasn't important to do anything for you. There was no clowns and, you know, and toys and, you know, give you a hug. So I'm in an isolation ward and, uh, and they had me sit in this chair, metal chair, and I'm stripping down in my underwear and they, they take these big long needles. I mean, big fat needles. If you ever had anybody stick a needle into your back going into your lungs to pump fluids out, they were pretty big. I don't know if they've gotten the process down any better, but back in 1953, 54 around there, whatever it was, uh, yeah, they were pretty big needles and they pumped all this fluid out. And that was like the first of about six or seven times they did that, but they had to pump enough out so I could breathe. And then when they were done, they just said, there's a bed, get in, turn off the lights and left. And I'm all by myself in a room in an isolation ward with no adults, no nothing, just sitting there. It's like, what? I mean, you know, hmm. so, and, and while I'm laying on the bed in a dark room, all of a sudden I find myself, uh, in this blaze of light. I mean, the whole room is illuminated and, and I'm not feeling any pain anymore. I'm feeling pretty good actually. And I went from the state of being feeling abandoned and unloved, unappreciated and in pain to feeling like God, the angels, the divine, you know, loves me. It was like the divine mother actually embracing me. It was a beautiful feeling. And next thing you know, I'm sitting up. And when I'm sitting up, then I realize that I'm sitting up, but the body, not me, the body is below me. <laughs> it's like, mm. oh, it's laying down. But it, it didn't, it didn't bother me that it just felt right. Like, okay, that's not me. I'm, I'm separate from that, that, that body that's all sick and everything down there. And I was enjoying this. Uh, spiritual psychic input of, of love and energy. And there's no way really to describe it. You always hear people when they talk about a near death experience, they always say it's about love, love, love. Well, you know what? There's, there's gotta be a better word than love because it's better, it's better than love. It's, it's, it's like being embraced by a million mothers that love you. And there is no worry. There's no concern. You just feel really good. And so that's kind of my state. And then the room got brighter and brighter. And then there was like this cloud, like a, like a, like a giant projection on a cloud where I'm seeing all these events, people, things. 
and, and historic things and things personally that were going to be my life unfolding. But the time I'm looking at them, I'm going, oh, this is interesting. But it was the next 50 years of my life were kind of unfolded in this room. How long it took, I don't know. Real time, I don't know. It could have been a short period of time. But in the time I was in, the no time zone, it felt like decades, right? It just, it was forever. So time didn't mean much at all. And, uh, and I'm watching who I, who I meet in high school, my wife, who I'm still married to 50 years later. And, and, and I'm watching the Vietnam War. I'm watching these helicopters and gunfire and blows and explosions and everything else. But, you know, there was no Vietnam War back then. I had no clue what that, you know, at eight years old, I had no clue what any of that. I didn't, I didn't push this together. Oh, this war's in Asia. This, no, but I knew it was a war coming and it was helicopters. And I knew I was going to survive and I knew I was going to be in all these heroic scenes and things were going to happen. And I also saw the whole Kennedy assassination, which was, and again, I didn't know who Kennedy was, uh, but I sensed it was a president and I, and I knew it was Texas and Dallas mm-hmm. and, uh, it was pretty accurate except for in my, in my vision state, there was more than one shooter. So, you know, maybe it wasn't accurate because the government tells me there was only one shooter. So it is what it was, but that's what I saw. I saw more than one shooter. I saw someone else. Um, and then, uh, what houses I was going to move into, who I was going to meet, uh, my children, the jobs, what towns I was going to live in. I mean, it just rolled it all the way out, all the way to, uh, my first trip to India in 2004, it just, it just took me there to age, age of about uh, almost 59. And now you were yeah. uh, a year after that, um, you read the story of Yogananda's autobiography. Uh, I, I can't imagine reading that at nine, but you, you had this background in the self-realization. Um, and I was wondering, how, how did that book... Um, affect you as a child? Well, I tell you what, it, from all the story. well, first off, when I'm in the hospital, my last, I was starting to get letters from Self-Realization Fellowship from some of the sisters, sister monastics, and very kind, beautiful letters, um, which was very sweet. So my, when I was recovering, I was getting that. But when I came back home after having this experience and coming back in the body and everything, I felt gratitude and, you know, being a young, I was nine years old, but I was in the hospital just about a year. So I mm. went in at eight, came back out at nine. I was there for Thanksgiving. I was there for Christmas. I was there for my birthday. Wow. You know, my ninth birthday. I was there, right? And, oh, I, I, you want an odd piece of information? So I'm in this hospital for about a year and there was one young man about my age. And he and I became friends. We, our beds were a little way up, up, apart. He was on the other side. We could look at each other. We were both on bed rest, and he had exactly what I did. He had he had Bryce's disease of the kidneys. And he was there about two months. I was there a year, but he was there about two months. So I, so I remember the guy. I go, this is really kind of neat. Now, flash to about four or five years ago, my house was having some work done, and I had workmen in my garage in the attic, 
and one of them fell through the ceiling in the garage and created this big hole in my garage. And I go, so I call up the boss. I go, hey man, one of your workers fell right through. You know, I was inspecting my attic for termites. So a guy comes out and we're talking. This old guy, my age, right? And and he mentioned something about he's from San Jose originally, and this is up by Sacramento Elk Grove. And I said, oh, how is this? I, I used to live in San Jose. In fact, I was in the hospital in San Jose. And he goes, really? I was in the hospital in San Jose. And I said, what year? And he goes, 1950, whatever it was. And I go, really? And then he told me. <laughs> well, and next thing you know, we, we know the same nerd. It was the same guy. Wow. The same person that I was in the hospital with over 50 years before. I mean, what's the odds on that? Well, in our world, the odds are good, right? They so, are. <laughs> so he was, he and I really had a little reunion. It was kind of a beautiful thing. And if it wasn't for his worker falling through the ceiling of my garage, uh, that would have never happened it, it, because we would have never crossed paths. So right. Was, right. So I got out, I got home and I felt great gratitude for having my life, uh, changed, altered, uh, saved. You know, I still have my physical self, even though I was under medical treatment for another seven years, believe it or not, I'd go back once a week to the hospital to get checked up. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, at that time, the Catholics used to uh, practice meatless Fridays where that was part of religion. I thought, well, geez, you know what they got? I got a lot to be grateful for. I got my life back. If the Catholics can give up meat, you know, once a week, I could do it. Every day of the week, right? So I became a vegetarian in my family. I'm the only vegetarian in my family at the time, and and except for my daughter and wife. Um, so I became a vegetarian at that age. And you know, back in the 1950s, there was no special products out there. There was you no know, no restaurants, no pizza, no nothing. I mean, nobody catered to you, right? So I, I did the best I could. So basically, I started off with I'd eat. A little turkey once in a while, and I have a little tuna, but pretty much it was vegetarian. Every time I got a chance, I was vegetarian, and I did that, and then I became pure vegetarian when I got married. But it, in that state, nine years old, when I come home, uh, I turned to Yogananda. I mean, this picture, you know that picture, the uh, the the last picture they took of him, his last picture at the at the at the dinner before he, he passes away. Yes. Beautiful black and white photo and it shows Yoganan and, and probably that's the greatest picture. I love it. It's a lot powerful. And, and I, I start off by reading the back part of the book where he died, you know, where his body didn't deteriorate when he died and everything. And, and I just started to start the beginning of the book and I read it and I've probably read that thing dozens of times. I've bought hundreds of copies to give to other people. Um, the book, it excited me in a spiritual way. I, I read the book and I had this desire nine years old. I wanted to go to Babaji's cave, which will lead you to the next time you interview. We will talk about Babaji's cave. Experience. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And now that you've mentioned that uh, last photo of Yogananda, perhaps we have enough time for you to tell the story of, of that powerful NDE you had meditating on that picture. All right. So what happened is, here I am at nine years old with this burning desire. And from that point forward, I had to go. I want to go to that cave. I mean, at that time, there was no tours to the cave. And they were keeping it a big secret. But then I heard that self-realization had, had actually purchased the land and bought, bought the cave and preserved it, protected it in India. But it was still limited access. 
But I wanted to go there. And every time I tried to go there, I tried to go there uh, in 1964, when I got out of high school, I, I, I moved to Hawaii and I thought I'd, I'd get on an airplane, go to, go to India that way. And it never happened. And then I, I hitchhiked to Europe and I thought, well, I'll get to Europe and I'll go to India that way. And it never happened. And, uh, every plan I had to go didn't work. And then I got married and had kids and I couldn't go. But anyway, so I end up there at 58 years old, almost 59, just a couple of months shy of 59. Mm-hmm. Remember, my visions went to just about 59, right? And it, and and one of those uh, visions that I had uh, when I was having the near-death experience as a child, the numbers 29, 59 kept flipping over, and I didn't know if I was dying at 28 or 59. But uh, later on, that that comes into play when I tell you this story. So we, I hike up. I, we finally, I get there to India with a friend. We hire a car, a driver. It takes us two months. We finally find that uh, where it's at. We go to this ashram. It's a, a YSS ashram, which is part of Self-Realization Fellowship. And uh, we got permission to go to the cave. We hike up to this cave. We get lost. I'm having heart problems. I'm having all kinds of problems. And, uh, and I'm in the cave, and I'm, I'm meditating. And I brought with me this prayer list of friends, enemies, people I've known, Everybody I could think of, and I had four pages with the uh, number 10 Adishia, I think, uh, typed on this thing, both sides uh, of names. And I, and I, every went, every time I went to a holy place in India, I took it with me and I read their names, you know, either silently or out loud. But I got to the cave, I decided that I would share the names of these people and, and ask for a blessing from Babaji at, at this cave. I figured these people are never going to come there. And I meant enemies too. I mean, I felt the people that really needed it and the people I loved both, uh, was going to ask for a blessing for them. So I did that. Later on, I ended up taking that same list, uh, on the Ganges River at, at sunrise a couple weeks later and did the same thing. I read it on the Ganges and I set it afire just as the sun was coming up and the ashes were dissolved on the river. But anyway, meanwhile, back on this cave, I finished meditating for about 20 minutes, 40 minutes in the cave and I'm feeling dizzy. Uh, my heart's pounding. I, I'm really in bad shape. I'm, I'm having some, some heart problems. And I, I lead us out and we're walking and we're getting lost. We're hiking about two hours. We're totally lost. I'm standing on this ledge of this 30 foot cliff up in the Himalayas. Mm. And, uh, boom, <laughs> my, my heart is pounded out of my chest and I lose consciousness and I fall 30 feet. Now, the good news is, the cliff is not straight up and down. It kind of had a couple ledges. So it was fall 10 feet, bounce, fall eight feet, bounce. You know, keep, I bounced two or three times. And I land on this boulder about the size of a Volkswagen bug. And I'm laying on my back. And I'm looking up at the sky. And it was like the Simpsons, the cartoon. The yep. Simpsons and the clouds all move and everything, blue sky. Yes. That's what it's looking like, right? <laughs> No, that's exactly what I was thinking in my mind. I'm going, the Simpsons, and I'm looking up there, and I go, well, that's kind of cool. My heart just, I didn't feel anything anymore. The pain in the chest was gone. The pain was gone. And next thing I know, I'm not just looking up the clouds. I'm I'm up, above it, above the body. And, and I don't call it my body. I call it the body, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not who I am, right? So I'm up there, and I'm looking down at the body, and uh I'm looking at it and I go, oh, that poor body, man. Look at that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a mess, but you know what? Hey, I made it to Babaji's cave, right? So, and I got this beautiful blessing. 
I don't care. I mean, you know, that's, it's all right. This is the way to go, right? So I'm watching this thing, watching the body just lay there lifeless. And all of a sudden, out of the grass comes this large, very large cobra snake. And my wife always laughs when she hears me tell the story, because I think I told the story when I first got back, and it was a six-and-a-half, seven-foot cobra. And then I think she heard me a couple years later, and it was a 15-foot king cobra. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is, being Irish, a large cobra snake is a large cobra snake, right? So yes. <laughs> I had no idea how big it was because it was coming out of the grass, and then the head and the body was slithering over my boots. And I got so excited, not not afraid, excited, like love excited, that it was like a jump start on my heart. It was like paddles. It was like clear, you know, and somebody putting a defibrillator on my chest. And I jumped up on her off the rock, and my heart mm-hmm. starts you know, it's beating again. And, I take a breath mm-hmm. and there's a snake crawling on my feet. So <laughs> what do I do? Crazy person, me, right? I'm grabbing the snake and slithering through my hands. I keep grabbing it, you know, and it's, it's like I got two hands around this thing and I, and I'm not, my fingers aren't touching. So I don't know how fat it was, but it was like, I got two hands, right? And it's slithering between them and, uh, and it slithered behind this, little tiny waterfall that was there by the creek and and it and it crawled behind it and the waterfall's coming down. It was a tiny waterfall, you know, it's like maybe six, seven feet to just a trip coming down. And then when I'm there, I'm remembering when I was a child reading the autobiography about about uh, Larry Masha's uh cave experience when he finishes this enlightening moment that he had where the palace was crystallized and all that. He's told to go down to this stream where this little waterfall's at and wash and bathe and, you know. And I'm looking at it and that's the story that comes to my mind. I'm standing there looking at this cave that nobody, you know, this, this waterfall below the cave that nobody knows where it was at. And there's a waterfall and I'm going, this is it, right? I mean, that was the thought I had. So, uh, it was a beautiful experience. There's a lot, lot more detail on that. A lot more things happened that were really neat. But when I came back from India, uh, I was, I had another major heart attack. First off, women got to be going, wait, you had a heart attack? You didn't go to the doctor, right? No, I didn't. I had a heart attack, finished another month and a half in India. Then I came back and then I collapsed in my, in my garage in my house and ended up at the hospital. And, and I go in there and, and, and I asked the doctor, he goes, man, we got to operate. We got to do this. I go, I go, I said, I said, how could that be? I'm a vegetarian. I meditate. I, I don't do drugs. I don't do alcohol. I exercise. I, you know, I, and, and yet, I'm having a heart attack? And the guy looks at me and he goes, he goes, Mr. McDonald, he says, with your genetic makeup, I would have guessed that you would have been dead at, at, uh, at 28 or, or instead of, uh, of, uh, 50. You're almost 59 now. 29, you've been dead at 29 instead of almost being dead at 59. Now remember it was back that 29, 59 thing flipping over. Right. So like, so had I not changed my diet, which gets back to that original thing, had I not changed my diet, became a vegetarian and stayed away from all this other stuff, genetically, I was predisposed to have died at 28 or 59 at the latest. And there I was two weeks before my 59th birthday, getting ready to go in for a heart procedure. <laughs> it was like, oh. And to make matters worse, my buddy from high school, uh, Paul O'Brien Jr. and I'm William H. McDonald Jr. So we were, we were born in the same hospital, uh, same day, within an hour or two apart, and our mothers were 
uh, roommates in the hospital, right? Mm. We, we didn't know that until we got into school. That was in San Francisco. We got into school uh, 40 miles away in Sunnyvale. And we, we talked about it. We discovered that we were actually started life off together, you know, cribs and I next to each other in the hospital. Anyway, I found out that he died. So his horoscope was just like mine, right? And he died about the time I'm having my heart attack. So it's like, wow. Yeah. Maybe there was something to that. Bill, sadly, this is all the time we have for today, but we're going to have to have you back next week. Um, this uh, heart attack you're describing now led to a, quite another uh, powerful NDE. And then there's that final, uh, the third NDE that I want to talk about, meditating on uh, the, that photograph of Yogananda. So let's uh, let's have you back next week, if that's all right with you. I, I, I got nothing better to do. I'm out here in California quarantined. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I've been made quarantined. Uh, uh, tell the audience where they can find your website. Okay, www.rev, R-E-V, Bill, B-I-L-L, McDonald, just like the hamburger, dot com. So Rev Bill McDonald, all one word, dot com. My thanks to our guest, Reverend Bill McDonald, for sharing his story with us today. And he'll be with us again next Monday for the second half of our interview with Bill. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and join us again next Monday and every Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.